0: Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hi everyone, I'm Julie and here we have episode 282 of Forgotten Classics, where we continue with Frank L. Packard's story, The White Mall. First though, here's the podcast highlight. It's summer. It's time to go to the movies. How do you know which movies are the best? Well, that might be a bit misleading because that makes it sound like this podcast highlight is about something that tells you about new movies. I'm talking about Malton on movies. Leonard Malton is a longtime American film critic who I just have never come across his work before, but I knew the name. So when I saw the podcast pop up last year, I started listening. It turns out what he does is take a, a movie or star or trend in the movies that week, and uses it as a jumping-off point to choose a topic. He does this with Baron Vaughn, who is a young comedian and actor, and they're fun to listen talk about these movies. Each episode talks about a great movie that you know an actor, a director, a topic covers a. Terrible movie that you should definitely skip by those people. And then A Hidden Treasure. I can't remember what they call it, but that's what I call it. And that's what interests me the most, actually, because they have mentioned either movies that I've heard of, but other critics haven't really liked. But because both of them, who are so different (laughs) in age and a lot of other stuff, will highly recommend some movie that you know, as I say, maybe the critics didn't love it, or I just hadn't even heard of it. I'll go ahead and try it. It's really added some interesting things to my to watch list. And I have found some treasures there. In fact, I think I've mentioned to you guys my movie group that I do with Caruth Haven, which is an assisted living community. And one person, what I was saying, and what we'll watch next is the prize winner of Defiance, Ohio. (laughs) starring Julianne Moore. And um, one of the ladies who really likes modern movies took one look at it and said very politely, oh, what gave you the idea to try this movie? (laughs) I was just like, I'm telling you, I wouldn't have tried it. Go ahead. And the next week when she was talking about it, I said, so how'd you like it? She said, I wouldn't have believed it, but I loved it. Now, every one of their hidden treasures has not hit me quite that way, but they have all been worth watching. And so I love to kind of binge listen to these. I'll save them up and get about a month's worth, and then I'll just start listening. They're all about mm, 45 minutes long or so. Of course, I'll put a link in the show notes But definitely give it a try. What you're going to find is remembering some movies that maybe you'd forgotten. Like when they were talking about Kramer versus Kramer. And I was like, oh, yeah, that was a good movie. I forgot all about it. And different angles to look at it from or the different movies from. And I especially have enjoyed laughing about some of the turkeys that they've talked about. I have agreed with them. So, Malton on Movies with Baron Vaughn. Give it a try. All right, back to the White Mall. Oh my gosh, she's holed up as Gypsy Nan in this horrible tenement. And here's the adventurer, and somebody's coming up the stairs and knocking on the door. What else could happen? Huh. Oh, just wait. You'll find out. Actually, let's not wait. Let's dive in and find out. And I'll meet you on the other side.
1: Chapter five of the White Mall A Second Visitor Mechanically Rhoda Grey thrust the paper into the pocket of her skirt. The door swung open. A tall man, well dressed, as far as could be seen in the uncertain light, a slouch hat pulled down over his eyes, stood on the threshold, surveying the interior of the garret. THE ADVENTURER rose COMPOSEDLY TO HIS FEET, AND MOVED SLIGHTLY BACK OUT OF THE DIRECT RADIUS OF THE CANDLELIGHT. THERE WAS SILENCE FOR A MOMENT, AND THEN THE MAN IN THE DOORWAY LAUGHED UNPLEASANTLY. HELLO, HE FLUNG OUT HARSHLY. WHO'S THE DUDE, NAN? Rhoda GRAY ON THE EDGE OF THE BED SHRUGGED HER SHOULDERS. THE ADVENTURER WAS STANDING QUITE AT HIS EASE, HIS SOFT HAT TUCKED UNDER HIS RIGHT ARM, HIS HAND THRUST INTO THE SIDE POCKET OF HIS COAT. She could no longer see his face distinctly. "'Well?' There was a snarl in the man's voice as he advanced from the doorway. "'You heard me, didn't you? Who is he?' "'Why don't you ask him yourself?' inquired Rhoda Gray tersely. "'I don't know.' "'You don't, eh?' The man halted close to where the candle stood on the floor between him and the adventurer. "'Well, then, I guess we'll find out.' He was peering in the adventurer's direction, and now there came a savage scowl to his face. It seems to me I've seen those clothes somewhere before, and I guess we'll take a look at your face, so that there won't be any question about recognition the next time we meet. The adventurer laughed softly. There will be none on my part, he said calmly. It's Dangler, isn't it? I am surely not mistaken. Parson Dangler? Alias, uh... "'Please don't do that.' "'It seemed to Rhoda Gray that it happened in the space of time "'that it might take a watch to tick. "'The newcomer, stooping to the floor and lifting the candle "'with obvious intention of thrusting it into the adventurer's face, "'a glint of metal as the adventurer whipped a revolver "'from the side pocket of his coat, and then, "'how they got there she could not tell, "'it was done so adroitly and swiftly.' THE THUMB AND FOREFINGER OF THE ADVENTURER'S LEFT HAND HAD CLOSED ON THE CANDLEWICK, AND SNUFFED IT OUT, AND THE GARRET WAS IN DARKNESS. THERE WAS A SAVAGE OATH, A SNARL OF RAGE FROM THE MAN THE ADVENTURER HAD ADDRESSED AS DANGLER, THEN AN INSTANT OF SILENCE, AND THEN THE ADVENTURER'S VOICE, FROM THE DOORWAY. I BEG YOU NOT TO VENT YOUR DISAPPOINTMENT ON THE LADY, DANGLER. I ASSURE YOU THAT SHE IS IN NO WAY RESPONSIBLE FOR MY VISIT HERE and, as far as that goes, never saw me before in her life. Also, it is only fair to tell you, in case you should consider leaving here too hurriedly, that I am not at all a bad shot, even in the dark. I bid you good-night, Dangler, and you, my dear lady. Dangler's voice rose again in a flood of profane rage. He stumbled and moved around in the dark. "'Damn it!' he shouted. "'Where are the matches? "'Where's the lamp?' This cursed candle put enough to the bad already. Do you hear where's the lamp? It's over there on de floor, bust to pieces, mumbled Rhoda Grey. You'll find a matches on de washstand and what's the idea? There was a sudden, steel like note dominating the angry tones. What are you handing me that hogwash language for, eh? It's damn queer. There's been damn queer doings around here since last night. See? What's the idea? Rhoda Gray felt her face whiten in the darkness. It was the slip she had feared, the slip that she had had to take the chance of making, and which, if not retrieved, and instantly retrieved now that it was made, meant discovery, and after that... She shivered a little. "'You needn't lose your head just because you've lost your temper,' she said tartly, in a guarded whisper. "'The door into the hall is still wide open, isn't it?' "'Oh!' "'All right,' he said, his tones, a sort of sullen admission that her retort was justified. "'But even now your voice sounds off-color.' Rhoda Gray bridled. "'Does it?' she snapped at him. "'I've got a cold. "'Maybe you'd get one, too, and maybe your voice would be off-color, "'if you had to live in a dump like this and—' "'Oh, all right, all right,' he broke in hurriedly. "'For heaven's sake, don't start a row. "'Forget it, see? Forget it!' he walked over to the door, peered out, swore savagely to himself, shut the door, held the candle up to circle the garret, and scowled as its rays fell upon the shattered pieces of the lamp in the corner. Then, returning, he set the candle upon the chair and began to pace restlessly, three or four steps each way, up and down in front of the bed. Rhoda Gray from the edge of the bed shifted back until her shoulders rested against the wall. Dangler, too, was dressed like a gentleman but Dangler's face was not appealing. The little round, black eyes were shifty. They seemed to possess no pupils whatever, and they roved constantly. There was a hard, unyielding thinness about the lips, and the face itself was thin, almost gaunt, as though the skin had had to accommodate itself to more than was expected of it, and was elastically stretched over the cheekbones. "'Well, I'm listening,' jerked out the man abruptly. "'You knew our game at Skarbolov's was queered,' you got the seven three nine didn't you yes of course i got it answered rhoda gray what about it for two weeks now yes more than two weeks the man's voice rasped angrily things have been going wrong and someone has been butting in and getting away with the goods under our noses we know now from last night that it must have been the white mall for one though it's not likely she worked all alone "'Skeeny dropped to the fact that the police were wise about Skarblovs, "'and that's why we called it off, and the 739 went out. "'They must have got wise shadowing the white mall, see? "'Then they pinched her, but she makes her getaway and comes here, "'and if I've got the dope right, you hand Rough Rourke one, "'and help her beat it again. "'It looks blamed funny, doesn't it, "'when you come to consider that there's a leak somewhere?' "'Is that so?' Rhoda grey flashed back and did you know before last night that it was the white mall who was queering our game if i had the man gritted between his teeth I'd. well then how do you expect me to know it demanded rhoda gray heatedly and if the white mall happens to know gypsy nan as she knows everybody else through her jellies and custards and fake charity "'and happens to be near here when she gets in trouble, "'and beats it for here with the police on her heels and asks for help, "'what do you expect Gypsy Nan's going to do "'if she wants to stand any chance of sticking around these parts as Gypsy Nan?' "'The man paused in his walking, and, jerking back his hat, "'drew his hand nervously across his forehead. "'You make me tired,' said Rhoda Gray, wearily. "'Do you think you can find the door without too much trouble?' Dangler resumed his pacing back and forth, but more slowly now. "'Oh, I know, I know, Bertha,' he burst out heavily. "'I'm talking through my hat. "'You've got the roughest job of any of us, old girl. "'Don't mind what I'm saying. "'Something's badly wrong, and I'm half crazy. "'It's certain now that the White Mall's the one that's been doing us, "'and what I really came down here for tonight "'was to tell you that your job from now on was to get the White Mall. "'You helped her last night.' "'She doesn't know that you're anybody but Gypsy Nan, "'so you're the one person in New York "'she'll dare to communicate with sooner or later. "'Understand?' "'That's what I came for, not to talk like a fool. "'But that fellow I found here started me off. "'Who is he? What did he want?' "'He wanted the white mall, too,' said Rhoda Gray, with a short laugh. "'Oh, he did, eh?' "'Dangler's lips twisted into a sudden, merciless smile. "'Well, go on.' "'Who is he?' "'I don't know who he is,' Rhoda Gray answered, a little impatiently. "'He said he was an adventurer, if you can make anything out of that. "'He said he got the White Mall away from Ruff Rourke last night, "'after Rourke had arrested her, "'and then he doped the rest out the same as you have, "'that he could find the White Mall again through Gypsy Nan. "'I don't know what he wanted her for.' "'That's better,' snarled Dangler, the merciless smile still on his lips.' I thought she must have had a pal, and now we know who her pal is. It's open and shut that she's sitting so tight that she hasn't been able to get into touch with him, and that's what's worrying Mr. Adventurer. Rhoda Gray, save for a nod of her head, made no answer. Dangler laughed suddenly, as though in relief, then, coming closer to the bed, plunged his hand into his coat pocket and tossed a handful of jewelry carelessly into Rhoda Gray's lap. "'I feel better than I did,' he said, and laughed again. "'It's a cinch now that we'll get them both through you, "'and it's a cinch that the white maul won't cut in tonight. "'Put those sparklers away with the rest "'until we get ready to fence them.' Rhoda Gray did not speak. Mechanically, as though she were living "'through some hideous nightmare, "'she began to scoop up the gems from her lap "'and allow them to trickle back through her fingers. "'They flashed and scintillated brilliantly, "'even in the meager light.' They seemed alive with some premonitory, baleful fire. "'Yes, there's some pretty slick stuff there,' said Dangler, with an appealing chuckle. "'But there'll be something tonight that'll make all that bunch look like chicken-feed. "'The boys are at work now, and we'll have old Hayden Bond's necklace in another hour. skeeny has got the sparrow tied up in the old room behind Schlecker's place, "'and once we're sure there's no backfire anywhere, the sparrow will chirp his last chirp.' He laughed out suddenly, and leaning forward clapped Rhoda Gray exultantly on the shoulder. It was like taking candy from a kid. The sparrow and the old man fell for the sick mother needing her son all night stuff without batting a lid, but the sparrow hasn't been holding the old lady's hand at the bedside yet. We took care of that. Again Rhoda Gray made no comment. She wondered, as she gripped at the rings and brooches in her hand, so fiercely that the settings pricked into the flesh, if her face in any way mirrored the cold, sick misery that had suddenly taken possession of her soul. The sparrow. She knew the sparrow. She knew the sparrow's sick mother. That part of it was true. The sparrow did have a mother who was sick. A fine old lady, finer than her son. Finch, her name was. Indirectly, she knew old Hayden Bond, the millionaire, and... Almost subconsciously, she was aware that Dangler was speaking again. "'I guess luck's breaking our way again,' he grinned. "'The old boy paid a hundred thousand cold for that necklace. "'You know how long we've been waiting to get our hooks on it, "'and we've never had our eyes off his house for two months. "'Well, it pays to wait. "'It pays to do things right.' It broke our way at last tonight. All right, all right. Today's Saturday, and the safety deposit vaults aren't open on Sunday. Mrs. Hayden Bond's been away all week visiting, but she comes back tomorrow, and there's some swell society fuss fixed for tomorrow night, and she wants her necklace to make a splurge, so she writes mister Hyphen B, and out it comes from the safety deposit box, and into the library safe. THE OLD MAN ISN'T LONG ON SOCIAL STUNTS, AND HE'S GOT PRETTY WELL SET IN HIS HABITS. ONE OF THOSE MUST HAVE NINE HOURS SLEEP BUGS, AND HE'S ALWAYS IN BED BY TEN, WHEN HIS WIFE'LL LET HIM. SHE BEING AWAY TONIGHT, THE BOYS WERE ABLE TO GET TO WORK EARLY. THEY OUGHT TO BE ABLE TO CRACK THAT BOX WITHOUT MAKING ANY NOISE ABOUT IT IN AN HOUR AND A HALF AT THE OUTSIDE. HE PULLED OUT HIS WATCH AND WHISTLED LOW UNDER HIS BREATH. "'It's a quarter after eleven now,' he said hurriedly, and moved abruptly toward the door. "'I can't stick around here any longer. I've got to be on deck where they can slip me the white ones, and then there's Skeeny waiting for the word to bump off the sparrow.' He jerked his hand suddenly toward the jewels in her lap. "'Salt those away before any more adventurers blow in,' he said, half sharply, half jocularly. "'And don't let the white maul slip you, at any cost. "'Remember—' She's bound to come to you again. Play her, and send out the call. You understand, don't you? There's never been a yip out of the police. Our methods are too good for that. Look at the sparrow tonight. Where there's no chance taken of suspicion going anywhere except where we lead it, there's no chance of any trouble, for us. But this cursed she-fiend's another story. We're not planting plum trees for her to pick any more of the fruit. Understand? Understand? She answered him mechanically. "'Yes,' she said. "'All right, then. That end of it is up to you,' he said significantly. "'You're clever. Clever as the devil, Bertha. Use your brains now. We need them. Good night, old girl. See you later.' "'Good night,' said Rhoda Gray, dully.' She closed the door. The short, ladder-like steps to the hallway below creaked once, and then all was still. Dangler did have on rubber-soled shoes. She sat upright, her hands, clenched now, pressed against her throbbing temples. It wasn't true. None of this was true. This hovel of a place, those jewels glinting like evil eyes in her lap, her existence itself wasn't true. It was only her brain now, sick like her soul, that conjured up those ugly phantoms with horrible, plausible ingenuity. And then an inner voice seemed to answer her with a calmness that was hideous in its finality. It was true. All of it was true. Those words of Dangler and their bald meaning were true. Men did such things. Men made in the image of their Maker did such things. They were going to kill a man to-night, an innocent man whom they had made their pawn. She swept the jewels from her lap to the blanket, and rising, seized the candle and went to the door, looked out, and holding the candle high above her head, peered down the stairs. Yes, he was gone. There was no one there. She locked the door again and returned to the bed, set the candle down upon the chair, and stood there, her face white and drawn, staring with wide, tormented eyes about her. Murder! Dangler had spoken of it with inhuman callousness, and had laughed at it. They were going to take a man's life, and there was only herself already driven to extremity, already with her own back against the wall in an effort to save herself, only herself to carry the burden of the responsibility of doing something to save a man's life. It seemed to plumb the depths of irony and mockery. She could not make a move as Gypsy Nan. It would only result in their turning upon her of the discovery that she was not Gypsy Nan at all, of the almost certainty that it would cost her her own life without saving the sparrows, That way was closed to her from the start. As the White Mall, then? Outside there in the great city, every plain clothesman, every policeman on every beat, was staring into every woman's face he met, searching for the White Mall. She wrung her hands in cruel desperation. Even to her own problem, she found no solution, though she had wrestled with it all last night and all through the day. No solution save the negative one of clinging to this one refuge that remained to her, such as it was, temporarily." She had found no solution to that. What solution was there to this? She had thought of leaving the city as Gypsy Nan, and then, somewhere far away, of sloughing off the character of Gypsy Nan, and of resuming her own personality again under an assumed name. But that would have meant the loss of everything she had in life, her little patrimony, the irredeemable stamp of shame upon the name she had once owned." and also the constant fear and dread that at any moment the police net wide as the continent was wide would close around her as sooner or later it was almost inevitable that it would close around her it had seemed that her only chance was to keep on striving to play the role of gypsy nan because it was these associates of gypsy nan who were at the bottom of the crime which she rhoda gray was held guilty and because there was always the hope that in this way, through confidences to a supposed Confederate, she could find the evidence that would convict those actually guilty, and so prove her own innocence. But in holding to the role of Gypsy Nan for the purpose of receiving those criminal confidences, she had not thought of this, that upon her would rest the moral responsibility of other crimes of which she would have knowledge, and, least of all, that she would be faced with what lay before her now, tonight. "'at the first contact with those who had been Gypsy Nan's confederates. "'What was she to do? "'Upon her, and upon her alone, depended a man's life. "'And adding to her distraction, she knew the man, "'the sparrow, who had already done time. "'That was the vile ingenuity of it all. "'And there would be collaborative evidence, of course. "'They would have seen to that.' If the sparrow disappeared, and was never heard of again, even a child would deduce the assumption that the proceeds of the robbery had disappeared with him. Her brain seemed to grow panicky. She was standing there helplessly. And time, the only precious ally she possessed, was slipping away from her. She could not go to the police as Gypsy Nan, and much less as the White Maul. She could not go to the police in any case for the corroborative evidence that obviously must exist unless Dangler and the others were fools would indubitably damn the sparrow to another prison term, even supposing that through the intervention of the police his life were saved. What was she to do? And then, for a moment, her eyes lighted in relief. The adventurer. She thrust her hand into the pocket of her skirt and drew out the torn piece of paper and studied the telephone number upon it and slowly the hurt and misery came back into her eyes again. Who was he? He had told her. An adventurer. He had given her to understand that he, if she had not been just a few minutes ahead of him, would have taken that money from Skarbolov's escritoire last night. Therefore he was a crook. Dangler had said that someone had been getting in ahead of them lately and snatching the plunder from under their noses and Dangler now believed that it had been the white maul. A wan smile came to her lips. Instead of the white maul, it appeared to be quite obvious that it was the adventurer. It therefore appeared to be quite as obvious that the man was a professional thief, and an extremely clever one at that. She dared not trust him. To enlist his aid would have been to explain the gang's plot, and while the adventurer might go to the sparrow's assistance... He might also be very much more interested in the diamond necklace that was involved, and not be entirely adverse to Dangler's plan of using the sparrow as a pawn, who in this case would make a very convenient scapegoat for the adventurer, instead of Dangler. She dared not trust the man. She could not absolve her conscience by staking another's life on a hazard, on the supposition that the adventurer might do this or that. It was not good enough. She was quick in her movements now. Subconsciously, her decision had been made. There was only one way, only one. She gathered up the jewels from the bed and thrust them, with the adventurer's torn piece of paper, into her pocket. And now she reached for the little notebook that she had hidden under the blanket. It contained the gang's secret code, and she had found it in the cash box in Gypsy Nan's strange hiding place that evening. Half running now carrying the candle she started toward the lower end of the attic where the roof sloped down to little more than shoulder high 739 Dangler had almost decoded the message word for word in the course of his conversation in the little notebook set against the figures were the words danger the game is off make no further move It was only one of many, that arbitrary arrangement of figures, each combination having its own special significance. But besides these, there was the key to the complete cipher into which any message might be coded, and... But why was her brain swerving off at inconsequential tangents? What did the coder, or code-book, matter at the present moment? She was standing under the narrow trap-door in the low ceiling now, and now she pushed it up, and lifting the candle through the opening set it down on the inner surface of the ceiling which like some vast shelf gypsy nan had metamorphized into that exhaustive storehouse of edibles of plunder a curious and sinister collection that was eloquent of a gauntlet long flung down against the law she emptied the pocket of her skirt retaining only the revolver and substituted the articles she had removed with the tin box that contained the dark compound gypsy nan and she herself as gypsy nan had used to rob her face of youthfulness, and give it the grimy, desolate, and haggard aspect which was so simple and yet so effective a disguise. She worked rapidly, changing her clothes. She could not go out or act as Gypsy Nan, and so she must go in her own character, go as the White Moll, because that was the lesser danger, the one that held the only promise of success. There wasn't any other way she could not very well refuse the risk of capture by the police could she when by so doing she might save another's life she could not balance in cowardly selfishness the possibility of a prison term for herself hideous as that might be against the penalty of death that the sparrow would pay if she remained inactive but she could not leave here as the white mall somewhere out in the night "'Somewhere, away from this garret where all connection with it was severed, "'she must complete the transformation from Gypsy Nan to the White Mall. "'She could only prepare for that as best she could. "'And there was not a moment to lose. "'The thought made her frantic. "'Over her own clothes she put on again Gypsy Nan's greasy skirt, "'and drew on again, over her own silk ones, Gypsy Nan's coarse stockings. "'She put on Gypsy Nan's heavy and disreputable boots.' And threw the old shawl again over her head and shoulders. And then, with her hat, for the small shape of which she breathed a prayer of thankfulness, and her own shoes under her arm covered by the shawl, she took the candle again, closed the trap door, and stepped over to the washstand. Here she dampened a rag that did duty as a face cloth and thrust it into her pocket. Then, blowing out the candle, she groped her way to the door and locked it behind her, and without any attempt at secrecy made her way downstairs. CHAPTER Six, THE Rendezvous. Rhoda Gray's movements were a little unsteady as she stepped out on the sidewalk. Gypsy Nan's accepted inebriety was not without its compensation. It enabled her as she swayed for a moment, to scrutinize the street in all directions. Were any of Rough Rourke's men watching the house? She did not know. She only knew that as far as she was able to discover, she had not been followed when she had gone out that afternoon. Up the street, to her right, there were a few pedestrians. To her left, as far as the corner, the block was clear. She turned in the latter direction. She had noticed that afternoon that there was a lane between Gypsy Nan's house and the corner. She gained this and slipped into it unobserved. And now, in the comparative darkness, she hurried her steps. Somewhere here in the lane she would make the transformation from Gypsy Nan to the White Mall complete. It only required some place in which she could, with safety, leave the garments that she discarded. And yes, this would do. A tumble down old shed, its battered door half open, ample proof that the place was in disuse, intersected the line of a high board fence on her right. She stole inside. It was utter darkness, but she had no need for light. It was a matter of perhaps three minutes, and then the revolver transferred to the pocket of her jacket, the stains removed from her face with the aid of a damp cloth, her hands neatly gloved in black kid, the skirt— boots, stocking, shawl, spectacles, and wig of Gypsy Nan carefully piled together, and hidden in a hole under the rotting boards of the floor behind the door, she emerged as the white maul, and went on again. But at the end of the lane, where it met a cross-street, and the street-lamp flung out an ominous challenge, and, dim though it was, seemed to glare with the brightness of daylight, she faltered for a moment and drew back. She knew where Schlucker's place was— because she knew as few knew it, every nook and cranny in the east side, and it was a long way to that old junk shop almost over to the east river, and-and there would be lights like this one that barred her exit from the lane, thousands of them, lights all the way, and and out there they were searching everywhere piteously for the white mall, and then, with her lips tightened the straight little shoulders thrown back resolutely, she slipped from the lane to the sidewalk, and, hugging the shadows of the buildings, started forward. She was alert now, in mind and body, every faculty strained and intention. It was a long way, and it would take a great while, by wide detours, by lanes and alleyways, for only on those streets that were relatively deserted and poorly lighted would she dare trust herself to the open. And as she went along now skirting the side of the street now through the black courtyard now forced to take offence and taking it with the agility born of the open athletic life that she had led with her father in the mining camps of south america now hiding in the mouth of a lane waiting her chance to cross an intersecting street when some receding footstep should have died away the terror of delay came gripping at her heart with an icy clutch, submerging the fear of personal peril in an agony of dread that, with her progress so slow, she would, after all, be too late. At times, she almost cried out in her vexation and despair, as once, when crouched behind a door stoop, a policeman not two yards from her stood and twirled his nightstick under a street lamp while the minutes sped and raced themselves away. When she could run, she ran until it seemed her lungs must burst, but it was slow progress at best, and always the terror grew upon her. Had Dangler met the men yet who had looted the millionaire's safe? Had he already joined Skeeny in that old room behind Schlucker's place? Had the sparrow—she could not let her mind frame that question in concrete words—the sparrow. His real name was Martin, Martin Finch, Marty for short times without numbers she had visited his sick and widowed mother while the sparrow had served a two-year sentence for his first conviction in safe-breaking the sparrow from a first-class chauffeur mechanic had showed signs of becoming a first-class cracksman it was true but the sparrow was young and she had never believed that he was inherently bad Her opinion had been confirmed when six months ago, on his release, listening both to her own pleadings and those of his mother, the sparrow had sworn that he would stick to the straight and narrow, and Hayden Bond, the millionaire, referred to by a good many people as eccentric, had further proved his claims to eccentricity in the eyes of a good many people by giving a prison bird a chance to make an honest living, and had engaged the sparrow as his chauffeur. It was a vile and abominable thing that they were doing, even if they had not planned to culminate it with murder. What chance would the sparrow have had? It had taken a long time. She did not know how long, as at last she stole unnoticed into the black and narrow driveway that led in between two blocks of down-at-the-heels tenements to a courtyard in the rear. Schlucker had his junk shop here her lips pursed up as though defiant of a tinge of perplexity that had suddenly taken possession of her. She did not know Schlucker, or anything about Schlucker's place except its locality, but surely the old room behind Schlucker's was direction enough, and she had just emerged from the end of the driveway now, and now startled, she turned her head quickly as she heard a brisk step turning from the street behind her. But in the darkness she could see no one, and satisfied, therefore, that she in turn had not been seen. She moved swiftly to one side, and crouched down against the rear wall of one of the tenements. A long moment that seemed an eternity passed, and then a man's form came out from the driveway, and started across the courtyard. She drew in her breath sharply, a curious mingling of relief, and a sudden panic fear upon her. It was not so dark in the courtyard as it had been in the driveway, and unless she were strangely mistaken, that form out there was Dangler's. She watched him as he headed back toward a small building that loomed up like a black, irregular shadow across the courtyard, and which was Schlucker's shop, watched him in a tense, fascinated way. She was in time, then, only, only somehow her limbs seemed to have become weak and powerless. It seemed suddenly as though she craved with all her soul the protecting shadows of the tenement, and that every impulse bade her to cling there, flattened against the wall, until she could make her escape. She was afraid now. She shrank from the next step. It wasn't illogical. She had set out with a purpose in view, and she had not been blind to the danger that she ran, but the perspective and mental encounter with danger did not hold the terror that the tangible, concrete, and actual presence of that peril did, and that was Dangler there. She felt her face whiten, and she felt the tremor of her lips, tightly as they were drawn together. Yes, she was afraid, afraid in every fiber of her being. But there was a difference, wasn't there, between being afraid and being a coward? Her small, gloved hands clenched, her lips parted slightly. She laughed a little now, low, without mirth. Upon what she did or did not do, upon the margin between fear and cowardice applied to herself, there hung a man's life. Dangler was disappearing around the side of Schlucker's shop. She moved out from the wall, and swiftly, silently crossed the courtyard, gained the side of the junk shop in turn, skirted it and halted, listening, peering around her as she reached the rear corner of the building. A door closed somewhere ahead of her. From above, upstairs, faint streaks of light showed through the interstices of a shuttered window. She crept forward now, hugging the rear wall, reached a door, the one obviously through which Dangler had disappeared, and which she had heard as it was closed, tried the door, found it unlocked, and, noiselessly, inch by inch, pushed it open, and a moment later, stepping over the threshold, she closed it softly behind her. A dull glow of light, emanating evidently from a door above, disclosed the upper portion of a stairway over on her left, but apart from that the place was in blackness, and save that she knew, of course, she was in the rear of Schlecker's junk shop, she could form no idea of her surroundings. But she could at last hear. Voices, one of which she recognized as Danglers, though she could not distinguish the words, reached her from upstairs. Slowly, with infinite care, she crossed the stairs, and on hands and knees now, lest she make a sound, began to crawl upward. And a little way up, panic fear seized upon her again, and her heart stood still, and she turned a miserable face in the darkness back toward the door below, and fought against the impulse to retreat again. And then she heard Dangler speak, and from her new vantage point, his words came to her distinctly this time. "'Good work, Skeeny!' You've got the sparrow nicely trussed up, I see. Well, he'll do as he is for a while there. I told the boys to hold off a bit. It's safer to wait an hour or two yet before moving him away from here and bumping him off. Two jobs instead of one, a surly voice answered. We might just as well have finished him and slipped him away for keeps when we first got our hooks on him. "'Got a little sick of your wood-carving while you were stuck around by your lonesome and watched him, hey? Dangler's tones were jocular, facetious. "'Don't grouch, skinny. We're not killing for fun. It doesn't pay. "'Supposing anything had broken wrong up the avenue, eh? "'We wouldn't have had our friend the sparrow there for the next time we tried it.' "'There was something abhorrently callous about the laugh that followed.' It seemed to fan into flames a smoldering fire of passionate anger in Rhoda Gray's soul, and before it panic fled. Her hand felt upward for the next stair-tread, and she crept on again, as a face seemed to rise before her, not the sparrow's face, a woman's face. It was a face that was crowned with very thin white hair, and its eyes were the saddest she had ever seen, and yet they were the brave, steady eyes that had not lost their faith, nor had the old, care face itself, in spite of suffering, lost its gentleness and sweetness. And then suddenly it seemed to change, that face, and become wreathed in smiles and happy tears to run coursing down the wrinkled cheeks. Yes, she remembered. It had brought the tears to her own eyes. It was the night that the wayward sparrow, home from the penitentiary, on his knees, his head buried in his mother's lap, had sworn that he would go straight. Fear! It seemed as though she never had known, never could know fear, that only a merciless, tigerish, unbridled fury had in her its thrall. And she went on up, step after step, as Dangler spoke again. "'There's nothing to it.' The sparrow there fell for the telephone when Stevie played the doctor, and old Hayden Bond, of course, grants his prison-bird chauffeur's request to spend the night with his mother, who the doctor says has taken worse, because the old guy knows that there is a mother who really is sick. Only Mr. Hayden Bond, and the police with him, will maybe figure it a little differently in the morning when they find the safe looted, and that the sparrow, instead of going near the poor old dame, has flown the coop and can't be found. And in case there's any lingering doubt in their minds... That piece of paper with the green smudges and the sparrow's greasy fingerprints on it that you remember we copped a few days ago in the garage, we'll set them straight. The cricket slipped it in among the papers he pulled out of the safe and tossed around the floor. It looks as though the tool had been wiped with it while the safe was being cracked and that it got covered over by the stuff that was emptied out and had been forgotten.' I guess they won't be long in comparing the fingerprints with the ones the sparrow kindly left with them when they measured him for his striped suit the time they sent him up the river, eh? Rhoda Gray could see now. Her eyes were level with the landing, and diagonally across from the head of the stairs was the open doorway of the lighted room. She could not see all of the interior, but she could see quite enough. Two men sat, side-faced to her, one at each end of a rough deal table dangler and an ugly pockmark unshaven man in a peaked cap that was drawn down over his eyes who whittled at a stick with a huge jack-knife the latter was skeeny obviously and the jack-knife and the stick quite as obviously explained dangler's facetious reference to wood-carving and then her eyes shifted and widened as they rested on the huddled form that she could see looking under and beyond the table and that lay sprawled out against the far wall of the room Skinny pushed the peak of his cap back with the point of his knife-blade. "'What's the hall size up at?' he demanded. "'Anything in the safe besides the shiners?' "'A few hundred dollars,' Dangler replied. "'I don't know exactly how much. "'I told the cricket to divide it up among the boys who did the rough work. "'That's good enough, isn't it, Skinny? "'It gives you a little extra. "'You'll get yours.' Skinny grunted compliance.' "'Well, let's have a look at the white ones, then,' he said. Rhoda Gray was standing upright in the little hallway now, and now pressed close against the wall. She edged toward the door doorjamb, and a queer, grim little smile came and twisted the sensitive lips as she drew her revolver from her pocket. The merciless, pitiless way in which the newspapers had flayed the white mall was not, after all, to be wholly regretted. The cool, clever resourcefulness— "'the years of reckless daring attributed to the White Mall "'would stand her in good stead now. "'Everybody on the east side knew her by sight. "'These men knew her. "'It was not merely a woman ambitiously attempting to beard two men "'who, perhaps, holding her sex in contempt, "'in an adventure of this kind, might throw discretion to the winds "'and give scant respect to her revolver, "'for behind the muzzle of that revolver "'was the reputation of the White Mall. They would take her at face value, as one who would not only know how to use that revolver, but as one who would not hesitate an instant to do so. From the room she heard Skeeny whistle low under his breath, as though in sudden and amazed delight, and then she was standing full in the open doorway, and her revolver in her outflung gloved hand covered the two men at the table. There was a startled cry from Skeeny, a scintillating flash of light as a magnified string of diamonds fell from his hand to the table. But Dangler did not move or speak, only his lips twitched, a queer whiteness came, and spread itself over his face. "'Put up your hands, both of you,' she ordered, in a low, tense voice. It was Skeeny who spoke, as both men obeyed her. "'The white maul, so help me,' he mumbled, and swallowed hard. Dangler's eyes never seemed to leave her face, and they narrowed now, full of hatred, and a fury that lie made no attempt to conceal.' She smiled at him coldly. She quite understood. He had already complained that evening that the White Mall, for the last few weeks, had been robbing them of the fruits of their laboriously planned schemes. And now again. Well, she would not dispel his illusion. He had given the White Mall that role, and it was the safest role to play. She stepped forward now, and with her free hand suddenly pulled the table toward her out of their reach, and then... As she picked up the necklace, she appeared for the first time to become aware of the presence of the huddled form on the floor near the wall. She could see that the sparrow was bound and gagged, and as he squirmed now he turned his face toward her. "'Why, it's the sparrow, isn't it?' she exclaimed sharply, then evenly to the two men. "'I had no idea you were so hospitable. "'Push your chairs closer together. "'With your feet, not your hands. "'You are easier to watch.' if you're not so far apart. Dangler complied sullenly. Skeeny, over the scraping of his chair-legs, cursed in a sort of unnerved abandon as he obeyed her. Thank you, said Rhoda Gray pleasantly, and calmly tucked the necklace into her bodice. The act seemed to arouse Dangler to the last pitch of fury. The blood rushed to an angry tide in his face, and, suffusing, purpled his cheeks. "'This isn't the first crack you've made,' he flung out hoarsely. "'You've been getting wise to a whole lot lately somehow, "'you and that dude-pal of yours. "'But you'll pay for it, you female devil. "'Understand? "'By God, you'll pay for it. "'I promise you that you'll pray yet on your bended knees "'for the chance to take your own life. "'Do you hear?' "'I hear,' said Rhoda Gray, coldly. "'She picked up the jackknife from the table, "'and keeping both men covered,' stepped backward to the wall. Here, kneeling, she reached behind her with her left hand, and felt for and cut the heavy cord that bound the sparrow's arms. Then, pushing the knife into the sparrow's hands, that he might free himself from the rest of his bonds, she stood up again. A moment more and the sparrow, rubbing the circulation back into his wrists, stood beside her. There was a look on the young white face that was not good to see. He circled dry lips with the tip of his tongue, and then his thumb began to feel over the blade of the big jackknife in a sort of horribly, supercritical appraisal of its edge. He spoke thickly for the gag that had been in his mouth. "'You dirty skates,' he whispered. "'You were going to bump me off, were you? You planted me cold, did you? Oh, hell!' His laugh, like the laugh of one insane, jangled, discordant, rang through the room, "'Well, it's my turn now, and—' His body was coiling itself in a slow, curious, almost snake-like fashion. "'And you'll—' wrote a grey, her hand on the sparrow's arm. "'Not that way, Marty,' she said quietly. She smiled thinly at Dangler, who, with genuinely frightened eyes now, seemed fascinated by the sparrow's movements. "'I wouldn't care to have anything happen to Mr. Dangler—yet.' He has been invaluable to me, and I am sure he will be again. The sparrow brushed his hands across his eyes and stared at her. He licked his lips again. He appeared to be obsessed with the knife-blade in his hand, dazed in a strange way to all else. There's enough cord there for both of them, said Rhoda Gray crisply. Tie them to their chairs, Marty. For a moment the sparrow hesitated, and then— with a sort of queer reluctancy, he dropped the knife on the table and went and picked up the strands of cord from the floor. No one spoke. The sparrow, with twitching lips as he worked, and worked not gently, first bound Dangler and then Skeeny to their respective chairs. Skeeny, for the most part, kept his eyes on the floor, casting only furtive glances at Rhoda Gray's revolver muzzle. But Dangler was smiling now. He had very white teeth. There was something of primal, insensate fury in the hard-drawn, parted lips. Somehow he seemed to remind Rhoda Gray of a beast, stung to madness, but impotent behind the bars of its cage, as it showed its fangs. "'We'll go now, Marty,' she said softly, as the sparrow finished. She motioned the sparrow with an imperious little nod of her head to the door, and then, following the other, she backed to the door herself, and halted an instant on the threshold.' "'It has been a very profitable evening, Mr. Dangler,' she said, coolly. "'I have to thank you for it. "'When your friends come, which I think I heard you say would be another hour or so, "'I hope you will not fail to convey to them my—you she-fiend!' "'Dangler had found his voice again. "'You'll crawl for this, and I'll show you, inside of twenty-four hours, "'what you're up against, you—you—' "'His voice broke in its fury.' "'The veins were standing out on the sides of his neck like whipcords. "'He could just move his forearms a little, "'and his hands reached out toward her, curved like claws. "'I'll—' "'But Rhoda Gray had closed the door behind her, "'and, with the sparrow, was retreating down the stairs.'
0: So now we see the white mall's mettle. If we thought she was tough before, despite her many inward trepidations, which we are allowed to see. Oh my gosh, she faced down those guys, rescued the sparrow, out as cool as you wish, all while pulling off a series of costume changes practically everywhere she went. Wow. I'm loving Rhoda Gray. I hope you are too. It's a lot of fun for me to listen to these. I wanted to mention also, if you would like a good book to read for yourself, I can recommend The Cane Mutiny, which Scott and I talked about at A Good Story is Hard to Find. It's the most recent episode, so it's easy to find. And that's about a 500-page book, but it's all about being at sea during World War II And if that sounds terrible, it's also about a young man's coming of age story, which they aren't terrible, though those things when stated baldly, if that's not the kind of story you like, you might shy away from it. But somehow it is written in a way that, I don't know, it's really compelling. I really liked it. So go listen to our conversation, or at least the first part of it, and that'll give you a better idea. The Classic Tales podcast finished up The Enchanted April. I cannot recommend this highly enough to you. I really loved that story. Okay, I might have recommended it already, but I'm recommending it again. Gosh, other than that, everything's just kind of going along at the regular pace. You know, it's summer. People are on vacation. People are coming off of vacation. I am going to be talking about The Picture of Dorian Gray on SFF Audio, so that should be coming up soon. I have to say, it is really surreal to read that book, and then I listened to Heather Ordover's comments from Craftlet. They did that on their premium feed, which were really excellent by the way. A lot of times she'll have that stuff available in the store, her store at craftlit.com to buy, and you should definitely listen to it if you're at all interested in that book. It's like a college course. It's amazing. And she's also on her regular feed doing Sense and Sensibility. So listening to these two stories and her commentary is really Interesting, and also a bit odd, because you've got Jane Austen and Oscar Wilde both essentially writing about how you can't just trust your feelings, you can't just do what you want, but from such different angles and such different times. Well, and of course, they're very different people. So if... (laughs) If I'm stopping listening to one and then picking up to listen to the other, it takes this moment of reorientation because the common thing there is Heather's voice, but it makes for fascinating listening and contrasting and comparing. And I have begun rereading Uncle Tom's Cabin. I know reading it for you guys was not enough, which I did several years ago. And reading it at the beginning of the year was not enough. I'm starting for my fourth time because Scott and I, in about a month, will be talking about that on A Good Story is Hard to Find. And I don't know what it is about these books that just hit that sweet spot for a person. I read it so recently, you know, in the scheme of things several months ago. And I'm loving it just as much this time through. I'm really looking forward to talking about it with him. So that's my reading. That's my um, summer. Mm, very hot now. No rain now. And I'm fine with that because we had so much rain before. And that is it from my end. If you have a comment. Of course, you can leave a comment at the blog for the podcast, which is hcforgottenclassics.blogspot.com. If you want to send me an email, my email is in the sidebar there, but it is julie, J-U-L-I-E, at glyphnet, G-L-Y-P-H-N-E-T dot com. And... I never turn down an iTunes review, though that has very little to do with anything, except I just like to see those reviews. So feel free to do that if you're interested. I appreciate it. And I also, of course, appreciate you coming by to listen even when I'm not reading the story. I certainly wouldn't be listening to this again if not for that. And I'm reading a few things ahead as this story goes on that I'm really enjoying and that I hope that you'll enjoy too. So... I'm glad we can all share it together. Thanks so much, everyone. Have a great week and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.